This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Insiders Back to You podcast. I'm David Spears, coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And a very warm welcome to my colleagues, ABC Finance presenter Alan Collar and Rebecca Levingston from ABC Radio Brisbane. Great to have you both joining us. Thanks. Good to be here. Budget Beck, as I like to be known in this period. Well, we, indeed, we are, we are back just days before the budget. I can tell you both fizzing with excitement about that. And it, look, it, it is going to be an important budget. We'll come to why I think that's the case when we get to some of the questions on the budget. I first just want to touch on this, though, completely unrelated, a bit of breaking news. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. The news has just broken that, um, and thanks to our ABC colleagues, Andrew Proben and Jake Evans in Canberra for breaking this one, some drama in the Greens party. Lydia Thorpe has been stood down as Deputy Greens leader by Adam Bant after admitting, after it was revealed by the ABC, that she was in a relationship with an ex-bikey boss while she was sitting on Parliament's Law Enforcement Committee where members do receive confidential information and discuss, amongst other things, bikey gangs. Now, we're assured no sensitive information was disclosed to the ex-rebels president, uh, but the problem was the conflict of interest here and not disclosing it to the parliamentary committee or to, at the very least, her leader, Adam Bant. And he was, um, well, not too pleased about this. Lydia Thorpe's staff knew about it. They were so concerned they raised it with Adam Bant's chief of staff. Uh, He didn't pass it on either, and so he copped a bit of a serve from the um, Greens leader as well. But it was was Senator Lydia Thorpe that he was most upset about. It was clear that this could be perceived as affecting her work and her failure to disclose that, at the very least to me, was an error of judgment. Now, on the basis that there, she has assured me that there is that there has been no breach, um, but nonetheless, this was a significant error of judgment. This is a fascinating story. I mean, the Greens, as they've grown their numbers in Parliament, are starting to experience some of the issues and problems that the major parties have always faced. You know, factions, groupings, different views amongst the troops. And now, a senator who's not lived up to, well, the Greens' rhetoric about integrity and transparency, particularly. I've got to say, though, Adam Bant handled this somewhat differently to how we usually see major party leaders deal with a problem in their ranks. Um, He was given um, the heads up about this, knew of this, when the ABC approached him, as I understand it, on Friday of last week. Then he spent, obviously, a few days establishing the facts, considering the best response, talking to Lydia Thorpe, dismissing her as deputy leader, so that when the story broke this afternoon... He wasn't um, you know, playing it down or sending it off for someone to investigate, no Gation's review or anything like that. He was able to announce that he'd taken action, stood her down as deputy leader. The big question is, is that going to be the end of it? He'd also made it pretty clear the party room, the Greens party room, can still now decide whether to boot her out of the party altogether. Look, we know Lydia Thorpe has also attracted a fair bit of criticism only a month ago for the way she behaved in a meeting with two uh, Indigenous leaders a year earlier. Um, That matter um, caused some grief for Adam Bant as well. So we'll see what the party room ends up deciding. But I just wanted to note that bit of breaking news and an unusual, uh, well, outbreak of tension and uh, disciplinary action within the Greens. But let's turn to the budget. Wait up, wait up. I've got a question on that. How... How far back do you think 
all other MPs are currently going with ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends just to see if there's anything else they should declare at this point in time? Well, it's a good question. I suppose whether there is any relationship, though, that's a clear conflict of interest. Yes. You know, th- this one is pretty clear cut. Uh, you know, when you're on a committee that's dealing with law enforcement and dealing with bikey gangs to be in a relationship with an ex-bikies uh, president, um, that's that's pretty clearly a problem. But it's a good point. Uh, do they all need to – do we do we need to consider disclosing relationships more openly, transparently uh, and, and frequently? Beck, is, is, is that the, the suggestion there? A dating history roster, yes. <laughs> we'll ponder that. Yeah, Maybe, maybe not a, a line item in this budget perhaps, perhaps but not. something to consider. Let's turn to the budget though. The first budget of any new government can tell us a lot about their priorities. This one though is somewhat constrained by the complexity of, of the moment we're in. Soaring inflation and cost of living, growing fears of a global recession, a mountain of debt and, and a structural budget deficit to contend with. Alan, before we get to some of our listeners' questions on this, what are you most interested in seeing on Tuesday night? I suppose the bottom line, the cash deficit forecast. Uh, but actually, you know, David, I, I, I'm not sure you're right that it's going to be a really important budget. It could be completely unimportant. Mm. As I note that, you know, you were talking about on Insiders last week, you were talking about the fact that it's just going to be a reconciliation budget of their promises, um, which is fair enough. And that's kind of what Jim Chalmers has been talking about as being a bread and butter budget and so on. So he's been talking it down and, and it's it's possibly going to be just that, just kind of tidying up all of their promises, exposing how they're funded and so on. And then all the big items will be um, next May. Uh, May when the big budget is, or the main budget is released. So it's look, it's possible this is just a, a bit of an accounting exercise. Well, the only thing I'd say is, I mean, I, I, he has been saying, I think particularly since they've um, dropped the idea of touching stage three tax cuts in this budget, Jim Chalmers has been saying, don't expect anything flashy or fancy. And he's kind of preparing us for a, a rather, you know, sensible, if dull uh, meal to be served up uh, on Tuesday night. But then I, I was thinking in the last few days about this and really what what he's done with this first budget in terms of the conversation starters the foundations that he's really laying with this budget. And, and you're right, the big decisions, if we do see some bravery, some boldness, probably won't come till next year. But he has begun the conversations around the spending problems that we have in this budget. I mean, every time he's been near a microphone, he's talked about those big five spending pressures. You probably don't need me to list them. Everyone's probably bored of hearing them, aged care, health, NDIS, and so on. He's also started the conversation on the revenue problem that we have. Now, yes, the stage three tax cut debate a week or so ago was a bit messy, But it got us all thinking about this revenue problem we've got. And he's also going to start the conversation around a wellbeing budget as well uh, in in this, his first uh, budget, something that will include measures on health and environment and education and so on in future budgets. So in in a sense, Alan, there there is something important about what begins in this new budget. Yes. Well, look, uh, there's been a structural uh, increase in government spending for the reasons that you sort of listed there, the NDIS and aged care and so on. So the, the government spending has already increased from about 25% of GDP to 27% of GDP, which is a big increase. And so they need to deal with that. Uh, and the other thing, the other background to the budget is that is the October 2020 budget, which was completely wrong. I mean, a lot of the framing of, of budgeting over the last couple of years has, has had to basically been all about fixing up the mistakes of October 2020 when, when they predicted 
a deficit for that year of 2020-21 of $214 billion or so, and it turned out to be actually, you know, $134 billion. They were predicting a deficit for the most recent financial year, 21-22, of $112 billion, which turned out to be $32 billion. I mean... It's a big difference. It's easy to get lost in those numbers, but it's quite a difference, right? Well, obviously, everybody panicked in in 2020 when in the middle of the pandemic, the country was shut down, uh, the Reserve Bank panicked, the government, Treasury panicked, and they were forecasting enormous deficits, you know, enormous declines in GDP, which did not eventuate in the end. Now, it's hard to know how much of that was due to the fact that they put so much money into the in the economy and also the Reserve Bank cut interest rates to 0.1% and, and also started printing money. So, you know, a lot of that was due to what they actually did, but it was also due to the fact that the, that the pandemic didn't turn out to be as bad as everyone thought. Mm. So the latest forecast for next year's deficit um, was $78 billion in the March budget, and the forecasts from the private sector now range between about forty billion and sixty billion. Deloitte Access is predicting sixty billion for this financial year deficit. Um, ANZ is predicting thirty-five to forty billion. So look, it'll probably be somewhere in there. I, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to to watch how the, how Jim Chalmers plays that and what what he tries to achieve in terms of a, a budget deficit and also going down the you know in the forward estimates and and whether he can actually show a, a budget deficit that is decreasing because i doubt that he can i think in fact what's going to happen is that this this year's budget or the the one that's just finished 32 billion was a low point in budget deficits and then things get worse uh, again um once that uh, temporary revenue windfall passes through Beck, um Alan's looking forward to seeing the bottom line figures. What, what about you? What, what, uh, what are you excited about a few days out from the budget? What are you going to be keen to see? I could sum it up with peaches, plums and petrol, David. Um, in terms of petrol, because this is the stuff my listeners care about, is the day-to-day stuff of life expenses. Um, people are cautiously optimistic about petrol not rocketing up over $2 a litre. If it does, that's the stuff that really starts to hurt. What, what is it now then, for you guys in um, so in Brizzy? Brizzy, unleaded about $1.70 a litre. Diesel, which I know you drive, I David, $2.33 a litre. Yeah, that's been jumping uh, this week, mm. I can tell you. Anyway. Yeah. Um, mortgage repayments for people. If, if Jim Chalmers could make the interest rate stop, uh, Jeremy was telling me the other day his interest rate uh, has risen from 2.9 to I think it was 5.4%, and that's about 400 bucks a month. The mortgage has gone up since May. Um, and the peaches and plums reference is uh, goes back to a comment that Jim Chalmers made this week in relation to the Victorian flood, saying, you know, this is going to hurt, you might feel it at the grocery shop, the impact of flooding, because... Um, you know, produce from that area, you know, either maybe damaged, ruined or, or not able to be distributed around the country. So again, for the average family, when they're thinking about Australian budgets and their own budgets, as we approach Christmas, people want to buy stone fruits. And I know that sounds like a really simple thing, but it's like a sign of the year's coming to an end, Christmas is on the way, soon cricket will be on the radio, we can relax and eat nectarines. Yeah, or a mango. Oh, exactly. And if they're really expensive, then it hurts. Yeah, yeah. Well, people are starting to talk, um, Alan, about uh, the mortgage cliff in outer suburbs, uh, you know, really mortgage-sensitive parts of the country uh, around the big cities. 
this is going to be a challenge for for Jim Chalmers if he is producing this huge revenue windfall that's uh, come in thanks to the soaring commodity prices, but we can't do anything to help you with your cost of living crisis you're going through. It's a difficult sell in some ways. Well, there is nothing you can do about it. I mean, the, the Reserve Bank is going to do what it does. It's put up interest rates already by quite a lot and um, it's going to increase them a bit more. And also um, power prices are going to go up next year. Uh, the Alinta chief executives, Jeff Dimery, said last week it'll be 35% and everybody agreed in the industry. Mm. And I think there might be a number on that in the budget too, on, on what's going to happen with what their forecast is on power prices too. Right. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, note that the ALP's climate change uh, policy forecast that the, the transition to renewables would actually lead to a decline in power prices. Mm. So that turned out to be wrong. Don't think they'll be repeating that in the budget. Well, no, but I mean, we've had we've had 18 months of the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, saying that we won't put up interest rates until 2024. And then we had the, the ALP's um, climate change policy saying that power prices are going to come down. And both of those things are wrong. And power prices are going to go up by 35% at least because I rang Alinta and said, you know, what's the basis of that? And they said, oh, well, that's the bottom end of our forecasts, 35%. Hmm. It's probably going to be more. Um, and uh, we've got uh, interest rates going up. My kids have got 400 bucks a month going on their mortgage as well. Hmm. I mean, this is really, uh, this is huge, massive. I mean, I, and I don't think the government can do anything about that. So how we're going to avoid a recession is you know, going to be quite interesting next year. Well, let's whip through some questions here. We've got one from Mike, uh, and it's a question for you, Alan. Mike asks, can you explain how many dollars the Morrison government wasted on useless things, jobs for mates and LNP members, and how can Labor recover that waste? Um, you know, I think Mike's um, you know, uh, clearly of the view that the Morrison government frittered away too much uh, money. Is is it easy to claw back now? No, I wish I knew how much it was, but it's certainly a lot. I don't think we can sort of sum it up as being tonnes of money. Uh, was wasted and uh, can it be called back? Well, the, the JobKeeper money, I think, is gone. I don't think that can be got back. Uh, I think the uh, the money that was promised to the nationals for getting them to change their change their climate change policy can be clawed back because it was only a promise so they can get that back. But the money that's gone is gone, I think. I mean... A lot of that money, uh, Beck, is in is in Queensland, committed to you know big projects. Oh, look, there, there's some money that they'll obviously claw back. So, you know, Catherine King told us on on Sunday morning, uh, she's now the transport minister, that some of the commuter car parks money they'll be able to get back. Maybe stage six of this building better regions fund. That's about two hundred and fifty million bucks. They might not proceed with that, but then some of the big uh, big bucks uh, are for projects like. Inland Rail, Hellsgate Dam, some other dams as well. They're, they're reviewing these things, so it may be they find some savings or don't proceed. But it's difficult once communities are expecting these to go ahead, isn't it, to um, to say no, we're actually going to save that money now. What what, what do you think is, a, is the feeling towards some of these big projects? Well, some of the promises were just big bonkers dollars, like $5.4 billion for, for dams up in sort of far north Queensland. I don't even know where that's at now because that was another previous government. But one project that is right in the heart of Brisbane City is the demolition and the rebuild of the Gabba Stadium. Now, that's supposed to be a 50-50 uh, Fed and state split. A hmm. billion dollars was the figure plucked out of the air initially. Now it's 
potentially maybe two and a half billion dollars. Catherine King, last time I told I spoke to her, she told me that, you know, they'll they'll look at the the business plan. But you know, that that kind of money, it's a bit of a trash treasure argument too in the city, in that one person's definition of waste is another's in investment in the future. Well, I was going to say, what shape is the Gabba in these days? Does it need a knockdown and rebuild? Depends who you ask. Right. There's also a little school that's tucked in under there, which is a kind of a, an education argument to be made in terms of, well, if you're going to invest in something, invest in the future of a school. But, I mean, people say the Gabba's still got a, you know, a, a life to, that it, it can exist in its current state, but they want to invest it, make a centrepiece of the Olympics. But keep in mind, a kilometre down the road from the Gabba today in Brisbane was the Queensland Housing Summit. This is about people who cannot afford yeah. to pay rent. They are living in their cars. They are living in tents. I spoke to a couple of women who live under the William Jolly Bridge in Brisbane, one of the main bridges here. Hmm. It's a mini tent city. This is, these are people who just cannot put a roof over their head and at the same time, you know, we're having a discussion about billions on a stadium. And the economic argument, of course, is that, you know, it generates tourism and events and in, whatnot to the city, but that's the kind of stuff that people are, are grappling with in terms of what's, what's waste, what's priority and what's future investment. Good point. I couldn't agree more, Beck, and I, th- I think that the, the um, you know, this business of priorities is really important. Um, the rental vacancy rate in Australia is 1.1% and we're letting, you know, we're opening up the floodgates for immigration, temporary and permanent, um, but there's nowhere for the people to live. And um, the other thing is that there's a huge infrastructure spend required uh, for flood levies, clearly. I mean, there's there's a million houses in Australia that are built on floodplains and they're all going to be, they all need to be protected or else moved to higher ground. I mean, the government needs to focus on that. I don't think it's going to be in next week's budget, but it needs to be in next year's budget. I think it's a very good point too. A question from Greg. Uh, Love the pod. Thanks, Greg. Greg says, an old tax man once told me that taxation is about plucking the most amount of feathers with the least amount of squawking. Do you think the government needs to be more courteous and claw back the fraudulent and unneeded job keeper payments from businesses that increased profits and cancel the stage three tax cuts, which combined would knock hundreds of billions of dollars off our current debt and deficit? Um, Alan, you touched on the job keeper clawback. It's interesting because today we had a um, independent review of how Australia managed the pandemic um, that was released. One of the things they said is job keeper absolutely should have had a clawback mechanism from the get go that said if if you didn't suffer that thirty percent downturn, um, that basically every business who wanted it had to say this is what we're expecting. If you didn't suffer that, indeed, if you if you did increase your profits, you would have to pay it back. That wasn't wasn't there. I, I did ask one of the reviewers, Gillian Broadbent, whether it's too late now to claw it back, and and she basically agreed with you, Alan. That ship sailed. It is too late. Um, but well, firstly, why is it too late now? Do you think to um, to go there? Well, it wasn't. You know, that's retrospectively changing the rules. I mean, um, Josh Frydenberg's rules when he announced JobKeeper didn't contain that provision. Um, so I think it's very difficult for the government now to to say, oh, well, we're going to change that now um, in retrospectively, and so give us the money. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, uh, you probably tackled Frydenberg on it as as well as I did, and he just kind of said, oh, well, it was. We're all rushing around. It was. We're all very busy and. 
was uh, was rushed and we kind of forgot. Yeah, I think I think his argument too was businesses needed needed absolute confidence that uh, to invest and operate and so on in in while well, they stared into the abyss and so on. But anyway, that's rubbish, really. I mean, other countries had clawbacks; they could it would have been fine. And on Greg's question about the um, stage three tax cuts. Look, clearly they're not touching them in this budget, but they are still on the table for you know next year potentially uh, to be trimmed, not cancelled. And, and the Treasurer's today confirmed the price tag for these Stage 3 tax cuts has gone up. It's now estimated to cost or forecast to cost $254 billion over the decade. Alan, why is that price increased? Is that thanks to inflation as well? And where do you see this going now? Yeah, that's because of inflation. And I, look, I mean... I, I don't think it's a big deal, to be honest. I don't. I mean, I think it's an interesting political issue, and you know, everyone's going to keep talking about it. But um, uh, the deficit doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> it's just we're really in a situation now where uh, nobody's worried about deficits and shouldn't be worried about it. And the debt, well, it's it's eight hundred ninety-two billion now. It'll be a trillion before long. Japan's debt is a multiple of that. Of government debt. The uh, Bank of Japan just keeps buying their debt. So the interest that the Japanese government is paying goes to the Bank of Japan and then it comes back to them as a profit. So, uh, look, I mean, I, I don't think it matters that much, to be honest. Interesting political story, but I don't think... It- I'm intrigued by that, though. I'm intrigued by that because, I mean, the Treasurer keeps saying that the biggest growing pressure in the budget at the moment, growing pressure, is the interest bill. So it does matter, doesn't it, in terms of the drain on the budget? He should stop talking about that um, interest bill. I mean, I, I, I think that that's a real problem. He, I think they need to, he needs to just kind of get everyone relaxed about deficits and interest and focus on what the government is spending the money on. I mean, and is it is it the right things? That's what really it's all about. And whinging about the interest payments and the the debt that they inherited is just not going to get them anywhere, in my view. They need to just stop talking about that. The Reserve Bank of Australia owns $350 billion worth of the government's debt, which is approaching half of it. That money, that interest goes to them. It comes back to the government. I mean, the interest is not that big of a deal. Hmm. Look, I know it's not a popular view. I'm, I'm a bit of a, a modern monetary theory person, to be honest. Um, I think that Really, too much is made of uh, deficits and debt. We've, I mean, we've had deficits most of the time throughout history, and uh, we're fine. It's okay. We're doing okay. Uh, Beck, uh, are your listeners though uh, a little more anxious than Alan about debt and deficit? Some are. For some people, it's a massive issue, um, and they get really hung up on it. And then others subscribe to. Uh, the Alan Kohler theory. On the stage three tax cuts, you know how the, the line has been, we've, we've made a promise, we're going to stick to the the, the promise. Um, I don't think people believe politicians keep their promises anyway. So uh, the, the logic is interesting to me, you know, and also sometimes the promise of something like, you know, Anthony Albanese saying we'll save you $275 on your power bill, that's a promise that sticks in people's minds. So I think it's it's an interesting path that Chalmers and Albanese are walking at the moment. A couple of other questions I want to squeeze in. Good one here from Leon about the Four Corners program on Monday night from Adam Harvey. Uh, it was about the plight of fruit growers in the Griffith area. 
Um, and Leon says it, this is not just about Griffith. Uh, he sees this problem going, um, well, he, he raises several problems here, Leon. I'll just paraphrase because he's, he's made a few um, lengthy points, but interesting points. Uh, he's concerned about the casualization of the workforce, the use of contract labor. He suggests more incentives could be offered to relocate people to the regions. Look, Alan, this was a great story. Workforce shortages are a real problem, and particularly in some regional towns. And you're seeing, and as as Adam Harvey had in that piece, you know, the, the dwindling staff that you need to run a, a local hospital, local school, all of this is really being impacted. I'm intrigued, though, Alan, because there was meant to be this tree change, wasn't there, after COVID, people fleeing the cities, going to lovely country towns. But uh, did that actually happen? It, it seems not in in, um, in terms of getting the skilled workers into these areas. Yeah, the, a lot of people have moved to the country, but um, they've already got a job. They're moving to the country because they're working from home. Mm. I mean, the two uh, towns or areas in the country with the lowest unemployment rates are Warrnambool and Borkham Hills in Sydney, Warrnambool in Victoria, their unemployment rates of those two places is 1.1%. But in each case, there's almost no houses to rent or flats to rent in both of those places. And so a lot of these country towns that need workers desperately, like Warrnambool has help wanted stickers on the front of virtually every shop. So they're crying out. They're absolutely desperate for staff and workers in Warrnambool. But there's absolutely the, – the rental vacancy rate in Warrnambool is 0.3%. There's absolutely nowhere to live. So if the government wants people to move to these country towns to provide labour for, for businesses and farms in those areas, uh, they're going to have to actually build some houses, I think, I mean, the, the government's got a $10 million fund that they've set up as part of their election campaign that'll build 10,000 houses a year. I think it's a year, isn't it, David? That's that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so 10,000 houses a year. Sounds like a lot. Absolutely nowhere near enough. No. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a fraction of what's required. And so uh, this is another thing I'm looking for in budget, so I don't think it's going to be in next week's budget, but they are going to have to put in the budget a much bigger fund for building accommodation and, and affordable housing uh, than $10 billion. Absolutely. Yeah, they will. Look, uh, they're keen for your thoughts on this as well because for years we've talked about various incentives to get people into the regions. And look, you know, Queensland is the most decentralised um, state, so it does this better than most. But um, what's the experience there at the moment? Here's the figure I'll give you. By 2050, 80% of Queensland's population is expected to live in southeast Queensland. Hmm. So... All the tree change, sea change rhetoric can come, but people still gravitate to a capital. So, yeah, where are we going to live? People already say the roads are so congested. We're losing the great Australian backyard. We're too full. It's too busy. We've got a master planned city called Springfield, which is about 40 minutes west of Brisbane, which is kind of held up as a, a bit of a an example of how to live, how to get infrastructure and resources, jobs close to home. If you have a look at the traffic between Springfield and Brisbane on any given, you know, peak morning or afternoon, it is chockers. So people are still coming to the city. Um, And the idea that they're going to move to a country town and enjoy a kind of rural change, I I agree with you, David. It's been talked about, I'd say, for decades, not for years. Hmm. And 
people still just aren't going to do it. Uh, it's a yeah, well, something that needs more attention. Uh, perhaps in, if not this budget, then uh, there's another one coming up soon. Look, a final question from Nerida, and this is changing tack again. Uh, Nerida says she'd love some analysis on the Australian government's position on aid to Ukraine. The coalition was quick to provide support, including coal, for Ukraine. Uh, the Labor government seems less keen to keep that aid flowing, but they like to crow about being one of the highest non-NATO donors. It appears, Nerida says, that uh, Labor's appetite to provide much-needed support for Ukraine is low. Um, look, Nerida does have a point here. Anthony Albanese did visit Kiev, of course, and he's uh, been in contact. He spoke last week to Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, but we're yet to see... Um, an announcement that we've been expecting for, well, weeks and weeks and weeks. They've been asking for Bushmasters. They've been asking for military trainers. Uh, maybe, again, this is something that gets detailed in the budget or around the budget. But, um, yeah, Beck, it's uh, a little curious that so far we haven't had any commitment yet to, um, to you know, in- increase, to continue the Australian support. Well, it's interesting because... Uh the week before last, Brisbane hosted this huge land forces weapons expo, essentially. So there's like 700 uh, companies from around the world who descended on Brisbane City, um, talking agencies like Rheinmetall locally, defence, um, weapons, you know, uh, uh, boxer combat reconnaissance vehicles and whatnot. And the treasurer of Queensland sees that event through um, the lens of both being there to provide support in the context of a conflict like Ukraine, but also as an economic bonus to not just Queensland, but to Australia. So here's the Queensland's Treasurer, Cameron Dick, when I asked him if he if he welcomed the Weapons Expo to the city. Absolutely. We're in a dangerous world, Rebecca. Uh, we make some of the best defence equipment in the world in Queensland and Australia. We're at the front line of our nation's defence in Queensland. We're also at the front line of defence manufacturing. Uh, and we see in Europe, described by President Putin as a special military action. We know it's a it's an act of aggression against a democratic free country. Um, those countries that share those values of freedom and democracy, we have to work together and we have to stop aggression. So that's Cameron Dick, wants to help Ukraine and help the Queensland economy. I mean, Alan, it's it, that's, that's really interesting. Um, yes, there's an industry angle uh, here, clearly. Australia's not, you know, its contribution's not necessarily going to turn the tide of, of the war, stop Vladimir Putin in his tracks, but it is about showing collective and ongoing support for Ukraine in this in this situation, isn't it? And, and, you know, not just for the sake of the Ukrainian people, but the the, the, the devastation this is this is causing to the global economy and energy prices as well. Yeah, of course. Are we are we thinking that um, there's some reluctance on the part of the Labor government to to help Ukraine? Or is it just financial? Are they just putting it off? I just don't know. I think the timing's just curious um, because they keep hinting that a decision's around the corner. Um, you know, and they have been for better part of a month or more now. Every time you know this this comes up, but we just yeah we're yet to see what the what the announcement is. Give them some more bushmasters, crikey! <laughs> I mean, they seem to like them. They they, they seem to work. They do. Well, we can't do much else. Well, just give them on um, coal. There's actually just today a thermal coal mine expansion in Queensland. That's been 15 years in the works. This is the New Hope Group's New Ackland open cut coal mine west of Toowoomba. It's just finally been granted a water licence, which is also curious in the context of, um, you know, the sort of renewable energy revolution and aspiration we've been seeing. So I don't know where that coal's going, but maybe Ukraine. I don't know.
coal diplomacy. I'm not sure if the Albanese government's too keen on that. But uh, we shall see. Uh, Look, we will have to wrap it up and leave it there. But thanks so much, uh, Beck, and thank you, Alan. Terrific chat. Thank you, gents. My pleasure. That's fine. And thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Please send us your questions. We love to get them. You can send them via the ABC Listen app or send an email to backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed post-budget next Friday. We'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.